We have had a uh, uh, wonderful conference. Uh, of course, our theme has been uh, advancing through the storm, and the motivation for this uh, series has been the increased hostility that's coming against pregnancy centers uh, throughout the nation. And it is becoming increasingly difficult uh, in operating pregnancy centers in light of the opposition uh, that we're encountering. And I'm talking about opposition, you know, politically, uh, legislatively, uh, with the media, and you could just go on and on. I mean, our centers, uh, for you that may not be aware, we receive death threats, terrorist threats. Uh, many of our centers become uh, vandalized. Uh, we have people that will uh, picket, you know, uh, say very derogatory things about us. We have the enemy will actually send in plants to our ministries, and then they come out and just spread lies. They get them before the media, and uh, uh, you know we're called fake clinics, uh, just everything under the sun. And of course, our church is aware because we were praying. Uh, you know, we had those laws passed in California, Illinois, and Hawaii recently that would actually mandated pregnancy centers uh, to promote abortion, which, of course, would have been a violation of our conscience under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And, of course, if, those, uh, if that had not been overturned at the Supreme Court level, and it was by 5-4 vote, uh, there may be some of these folks that would be in jail today. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, that's what we're up against. And so uh, uh, we know that uh, these folks need great encouragement uh, in dealing with adversity and dealing with persecution. Uh, we're looking at seven lessons this weekend related to that. We've already had five. Uh, we're focusing on uh, seven biblical heroes of the faith that suffered great persecution, adversity, and we're just gleaning from them. Uh, lessons for our own lives and ministries. Our first lesson was on Joseph uh, navigating the maze of God's prov uh, providence. Our second lesson was on David, how God uses persecution uh, to perfect his child. Of course, going back to Joseph, he had 13 long years of suffering, many of those years in Egyptian prison. David had 10 long years of persecution in the Judean wilderness, uh, trying to escape the madman Saul who was trying to kill him. And then we looked at uh, Jeremiah, an incredible figure. Uh, over 50 years of ministry with no success. And he was just considered a vil villain. Uh, reviled, persecuted, physically, emotionally, every which way. And the guy never flinched. Uh, it was like a rock at Gibraltar. But, but we discovered that uh, he was weak. And although he was a mighty man in the public's eyes, he became very transparent w with God about his timidity and his fear and his struggles and his disappointments. And it was in that relationship with God he found the uh, strength to stand alone uh, despite his uh, weakness. And then last night we looked at uh, Daniel and how God, uh, despite Persecution advances his work, that you bottom line can't stop God, that our God is unstoppable. And if you examine uh, the history of the church, uh, God has always used persecution, not only to perfect his children, but to advance the cause of Christ. And anywhere where there's persecution, there's an explosion of people coming to know Christ. And we see that even uh, to this day. And then this morning, we looked at Nehemiah, who uh, encountered tremendous opposition in attempting to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And uh, we gleaned lessons from him how to complete God's work uh, despite uh, strong opposition. This lesson six is on the Apostle Paul. And, uh, and we're going to be looking at uh, four resolutions that Paul made in his own life that we trust God will drive into our hearts and lives that will provide direction uh, for us as we encounter persecution and provide an anchor, stability, foundation for us. So uh, bow with me in uh, prayer and we'll get started. 
Father, we do commit this sixth lesson to you on Paul. Uh, Father, this is uh, a tremendous challenge to us uh, when we look at Paul's example. But there's much that this man can teach us about how to encounter persecution, uh, the mindset that we're to have, the attitude, the resolve that we're to have. And, and Lord, we acknowledge right up front, and Paul would acknowledge this, that although we're talking about four resolutions he made, these resolutions can't be lived out apart from your power at work in us. And so, uh, Lord, we trust that as we would embrace these same resolutions, like Paul did, like Paul, you would perfect your strength in our weakness and enable us to stand firm, for it's in Christ's name we do pray, amen. So again, lesson six uh, on Paul, to live Christ, to die gain, the resolve to remain faithful in persecution. Hope you picked up a uh, copy of the notes and so let's walk through this. There's, uh, there's a lot, and, but I trust it will be very meaningful uh, to all of our hearts. Uh, you'll notice right there at the beginning of the notes, the book of Philippians, I need to give you a little background to the book because that's going to be our focus. The book of Philippians was written by Paul from his imprisonment in Rome, uh, a decade after birthing the church in Philippi in the fires of persecution. Paul was deeply, deeply concerned about escalating persecution against the Philippians, which would possibly cause them to retreat from advancing the gospel. The purpose of this book, the primary purpose of the book of Philippians was to encourage the Philippians to regard suffering for Christ and honor and to continue to advance the gospel regardless the opposition or cost. Uh, you see the very theme core of the book in the first chapter, verses 27 through 30. And Paul wrote, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. In other words, we're not only to share the gospel, we're to live the gospel. So that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. In no way, li listen to this, attendees, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. And one of the primary ways that Paul inspires the Philippians is by sharing four resolutions that he made in his own life to remain faithful to Christ. And you see one resolution in each of the four chapters of Philippians. And let me just say this in honor of the Pearsons, Jim and Ann Pearson. And y'all know Jim uh, passed away uh, several years ago. I had the wonderful privilege of doing Jim's eulogy at his funeral. And I want you to know I built his eulogy around these four resolutions. And at this point, he's the only man I've ever known that I could do that with authenticity. I say that in honor to Jim. And there's only one other man that I know that I'll be able to do it for in the future, and that's the former senior pastor right here, Brother David. And we trust God to give him many, many more years. And uh, we thought we were going to lose Brother David uh, last year. He's bounced back very, very well. Uh, but when he was struggling... I went to him and said, Brother David, I got to, you got to hang on a little longer because I haven't yet prepared your eulogy. I'm still working on it. So uh, <laughs> give me a little longer. But, uh, uh, but uh, thank God for men like Jim and uh, Brother David uh, who are contemporary individuals that have lived these truths out and that provide us examples worth following. Now, we need to begin by gaining an understanding of what the believers in Philippi were up against. Uh, 
Philippi was a Greek city uh, which was given Roman citizenship. This was quite an honor, incredible honor, uh, to be given uh, a Greek city uh, after the famous battle of Philippi. And in that battle, Octavian and Mark Anthony, who were two Roman generals, defeated the forces of the Roman Senate led by Cassius and Brutus, uh, who, of course, were the assassins of Julius Caesar. The battle was fought just outside the city of Philippi, and it ended, this is the significance of the battle, it ended the 500-year-old republic form of government. As the Roman Senate declared Octavian to be Caesar Augustus, the first of a long line of emperors, of Caesars, who ruled with absolute authority, with an iron fist. Now, the name Caesar Augustus should ring a bell. Uh, he was the emperor at the birth of Christ. And Caesar Augustus, and this is very significant, converted Philippi into a Roman military colony. And he populated the city with veterans of war, which created tremendous loyalty to Rome. Philippi, literally, this is how Philippi was known in that day. It became a miniature Rome in architecture, in customs. Latin became the official language. Uh, and although it was a Greek city, Philippi... Uh, knew a pride for Rome like no other city in the entire Roman Empire. Religion in Philippi consisted of a number of pagan cults with a very small Jewish population, but here's the key. The dominant religion was the emperor cult. The emperor was literally deified as the Son of God, the Savior and Lord of the world. Those were titles given to him, God, Savior, the Lord of the world. He's called high priest. And the Romans, they didn't give a hoot what religion you embraced. Even Christianity, as long as you confessed supreme allegiance to Caesar. The deification of the emperor put the Christians on a collision course with Rome and mark them for persecution. Christians refused to acknowledge the emperor's deity. They refused to acknowledge that Caesar had an authority that was greater than Christ. Therefore, they became, from the Romans' perspective, from their perspective, it wasn't a religious issue, from the Romans' perspective, they were guilty of civil disobedience. And they were viewed dangerous, dangerous rebels of the state, of Rome. Now, at the time that Paul wrote the book of Philippians, you know who's emperor? Crazy man, Nero, who, you know, had Peter put to death, eventually has Paul executed. Uh, and persecution of believers had greatly intensified in the Roman Empire. Economically in Philippi. The Christians were literally blackballed from all work, which plunged them and their families into destitute poverty. The Philippians suffered slander, ridicule, terrible mistreatment on a daily basis. And now they faced the possibility of martyrdom. So you can hopefully understand Paul's concern for the Philippian believers that in the midst of this opposition, that they would not retreat. But they would continue to advance the gospel with an uncompromising faith, regardless of the price, regardless of the consequences, and count it in honor to suffer for Jesus. So look now at the four resolutions that Paul made in his life to remain faithful to Christ in suffering, which he uses to inspire the Philippians to remain faithful. And I pray, as I mentioned earlier, God will burn these four truths on our hearts. Here's the resolution in chapter 1. 
to live for Christ in all circumstances. To live for Christ in all circumstances. Philippians 1.21, here's the resolution. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. The verse is striking in the Greek text because it simply reads, to live Christ, to die gain. It is important to see the context, extremely important to see the context in which Paul makes this statement. It just, it just makes it come alive. In Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 13, we read, he says, Now I want you to know, my brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known through the Praetorian Guard, and to everyone else. Now, when Paul mentions his circumstances, what is he referring to? He's referring to the circumstances of his imprisonment. And let me give you some more details about those circumstances, because it may be as great an example as you'll find anywhere in the Bible of Romans 8.28. And we've seen numerous of those examples throughout this entire weekend beginning with Joseph and going through every one of these biblical characters, you've seen how God is overruled in their lives uh, despite adversity, despite persecution to accomplish His work in and through them. But here's the circumstances. Paul goes to Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, he's falsely accused by Jews of bringing Greeks into the temples, Gentiles into the temples, and that was a no-no. Now, he actually did not do this. It was a, uh, a false accusation. But it literally ignites a riot in the city of Jerusalem. A lynch mob comes in, drags Paul out of the temple, and they begin beating him intent to kill him. And Paul would have lost his life right there if it had not been for God's intervention. And God intervene in just the nick of time by bringing some Roman soldiers. But they actually arrest Paul. Now, they save him from getting killed, but they arrest him because they think that he's this Egyptian terrorist on their most wanted list. Well, they don't have Paul very long, and they realize this guy's no terrorist. He's a follower of Christ who has incited the Jews. We're then told the Jews devise a plot to kill Paul, but it's divinely exposed. You might remember the story. It was Paul's nephew that overheard the plot, and he was able to uh, let the Roman soldiers know that. This results in the Romans sneaking Paul out of Jerusalem under the cover of night, protected by 470 soldiers. Paul is taken to Caesarea, uh, which was the providential capital, uh, to be put on trial by the Roman governor Felix. At the trial, Paul is accused of blaspheming God by desecrating the temple. The Jews bring that accusation, of course. He's accused of defying Israel by disobeying the Mosaic law. And then the worst of all the crimes, he's accused of defying Rome by being an insurrectionist, which would have been punishable by death. Despite the fact that they can't make the charges stick, they can't prove the case against Paul, Felix keeps Paul in prison in Caesarea for two years. Totally innocent. Nothing's proven. None of the charges. But he does that as a concession to the Jews. It was sort of the politically correct move to make, the expedient move politically. But here's Paul, shackled now, two years in prison in Caesarea. Felix is succeeded by Festus as the new governor. The Jews immediately request Festus to move Paul to Jerusalem where they, the Jews, can put him on trial. Their actual plan, we're told, was to set an ambush and to kill Paul before he ever got to Jerusalem. 
Festus refuses their request, and instead he sets up a second trial there in Caesarea. As in the first trial, same charges are brought. Once again, they can't make any of the charges stick on Paul. It's obvious that he's, he's, he's innocent. Uh, Festus, feeling pressured by the Jews, he suggests, well, why don't we just move the trial to Jerusalem? Well, at this point, Paul knows. I mean, he's not dumb. And we are to be as wise as serpents. He realizes, if he lets me go to Jerusalem, I am a dead man. So this was a pretty uh, striking move that he make, made, but he appeals his case to Caesar, who is Nero, which was his right. Because remember, Paul was what? A Roman citizen. And every Roman citizen could appeal a capital case to Caesar. And that, this was a capital case, because that most serious crime is that he was an insurrectionist against the state. Well, Paul then is given one more opportunity to present his case in a private meeting with Festus and the Jewish king, King Agrippa. Paul powerfully, if you're familiar with the story, it's stunning. He powerfully presents the gospel to these two men. Festus concludes, Paul is a crazy lunatic. He's just an absolute idiot. Agrippa acknowledges Paul has done absolutely nothing worthy of death or imprisonment, and he should be set free. But again, wanting to stay on the good side of the Jews, the politically expedient decision is made to send Paul to Rome to appeal his case to Caesar. On the way to Rome, in one of the most dramatic stories in the entire Bible, they need to make a movie of this. It has everything imaginable that would make for a great movie in terms of intrigue and crisis and delivery. Paul's ship encounters hurricane-force winds and is shipwrecked. Paul becomes stranded on the island of Malta for three months along with the other prisoners, the Roman soldiers guarding them, and the ship's crew. Eventually, they hop on another ship, and Paul finally arrives in Rome. Paul, don't miss this, because you've got to understand this man's heart and the struggles that inevitably had to have been going on. Because he's just like you and I in terms of dealing with discouragement, disappointment. Paul, if you, do you know what Paul's greatest ambition will, always was? He stated it. Rome. He always wanted to go to Rome. He wanted to go to Rome to do what? To preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. But he doesn't get to Rome as a preacher. He gets to Rome as what? A prisoner. A prisoner. For another two full years. So two years imprisonment in Caesarea, two full years of imprisonment in Rome. Now, here's the key. This is so exciting. And God is so great. He's so great. During his two-year imprisonment in Rome, the guards who watch Paul are not just any Roman soldiers. They are the Praetorian Guard. The Praetorian Guard was a hand-picked division of 9,000 crack imperial troops, the most elite soldiers in the entire Roman Empire. They were dispersed strategically throughout Rome to keep the peace and, most important, to protect the emperor. Eventually, they became so powerful that they were considered kingmakers who not only protected the emperor, but actually chose the emperors. And one of their duties, one of the duties of the Praetorian Guard was to guard prisoners awaiting trial before Caesar, which would have been capital crimes. Paul was chained to one of these soldiers 24 hours a day. In four-hour shifts, which Paul meant, which meant that Paul was chained to six different soldiers every day of his imprisonment for two full years. Yeah. 
I bet every time a new soldier was chained to Paul, and that, that's how it worked. When they were, they'd get chained to Paul. A little twinkle came in Paul's eyes. <laughs> and a little smile, smirk on his face. And he thought to himself, <laughs> you think you're here to guard me. <laughs> Reality is, I've been brought here to win you to Christ. Think about this. They were chained to Paul when he wrote the book of Ephesians. They were chained to Paul when he wrote Colossians, when he wrote Philemon, when he wrote the book of Philippians that we're looking at this morning. They heard every one of Paul's conversations with visitors, whether it was sharing the gospel to the lost or encouraging believers. They heard his prayers which included prayers for them. They witnessed up close and personal, as up close and personal as you can get, the holy, loving character of Christ displayed through Paul. And can you even begin to imagine the conversations they had when left alone with Paul? (laughs) Paul's message, Paul's life had a profound impact on these elite and influential soldiers. We know that some came to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Paul wrote, the cause of Christ became well known throughout the Praetorian Guard, all 9,000. And then he says, and to everyone else, you know what he's referring to there? Rome and all of its residents. When you come to the end of the book of Philippians, Paul writes, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Christ literally became the talk of Rome. Literally the talk of Rome and its two million residents at the time. If Paul were asked, Paul, how did all this happen? I don't think he would say anything. I think he would just hold up his chains. What initially, here's here's the application, here's the point. What initially appeared to be the greatest setback imaginable for the gospel became one of the greatest advances of the gospel in the history of the church. God accomplished through Paul as a prisoner what he could never have accomplished through Paul as a free man. When the Romans bound Paul, they did not realize they were merely releasing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Matter of fact, when Paul wrote in verse 12, my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. The word progress is a Greek military term referring to army engineers going before the troops to open the way into new territories. Paul viewed his imprisonment as a pioneer advance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now this leads to a most amazing observation which brings us a great challenge when we face our difficulties and circumstances and adversities. While Paul was in prison for all those years, not knowing whether he would live or die, what was his expectation of God? How do you think Paul prayed? Well, look at Philippians 1.20. According to my earnest expectation and hope. This is what I'm expecting of God. This is what I'm looking to God for. This is my hope that I shall not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ shall even now in this imprisonment, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. That is what it means to live for Christ in all circumstances. Paul never viewed his circumstances as an obstacle to his faith, but opportunities, stepping stones that God had provided, not only for his growth, but to put Christ on display for others. Look at the second resolution. 
Ooh, I do need to move, don't I? Uh, second revelation, I, I'll, uh, chapter 2. To love like Christ in all relationships. Not only to live like Christ, to, to, to live for Christ in all circumstances, but to love like Christ in all relationships. Philippians 2.5, have this attitude or have this mind in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. What does it mean to love like Christ? Well, love is thinking about others with the mind of Christ first. Love is thinking about others with the mind of Christ. Chapter 2, verse 3, do nothing, nothing, nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Nothing out of pride, a desire to put yourself up on a pedestal. No, but with humility, with lowliness of mind, you're to regard others more important than yourself. And that word regard and important were military terms. The word regard means literally to let lead or to let command. And the word important is your superior. Paul is saying when you relate to other people with lowliness of mind, you're to make a choice because you're a follower of Jesus Christ. To let lead, to command in your thoughts related to that person, in your attitude towards that person, that they are your superior. And that you live to serve them and they don't live to serve you. Love is looking at others with the eyes of Christ. Verse 4, don't look out for your own personal interests, but look to the interest of others. And that word look is an amazing word in the Greek text. It literally means that something has captured my attention where I'm oblivious of everything else. And not only am I focused on this one thing, my ambition in life is to apprehend it and make it my own. And attendees, that's what God has called us to do for the clients that God brings to us. Our goal is to see that woman become everything Jesus ever intended her to be. And the most effective way to save the baby is to love that woman unconditionally, regardless of any decision she were to make. Love is embracing others with the arms of Christ. It says, uh, Jesus, although... Uh, he was equal to God. He did not consider equality with God a thing to grasp, selfishly grasp. But he emptied himself of all of his rights, of everything but love. And he took upon himself the form of a bond servant. In other words, very, very simply, attendees, if I have my arms filled with a bunch of clutter, what do I have to do before I can get close to one of you and embrace you? I've got to put the clutter down. And love demands discipline. And as you go into your ministries, you have to lay aside your own burdens, your own personal trials, so that you can really focus emotionally in every part of your being on this woman that God has brought to you to love and minister to and to wrap her up unconditionally in the arms of Christ. And then love is pursuing others with the heart of Christ's love. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself to the point of what? Death. His love knew no limits, and we need to demonstrate to our clients a love that will know no limits, that will love them regardless. So we need to realize, we've talked a little bit about this in passing, every client that God brings through your door is God's gift to you. It's God's gift to give you the opportunity to learn to love like this, to learn to love like Christ. We talk about when a girl comes to the door, it's a divine appointment for that girl. That is very true. I would never make light of that. I would never try to make fun of that. You can know if she comes through your door, God has brought her in his providence to you. But what I, my problem is we miss the other side of the coin. It's not only a divine appointment for that girl. It's a divine appointment for you and your ministry. Because she's God's gift to you to give you an opportunity to learn to love. And the more difficult the client, the harder the client. Remember the hug testimony the other day? the greater the opportunity. And even if you don't have a result like that. And I hope you have that attitude. So even the girls that reject your counsel and maybe leave and obtain an abortion, you're always asking, you're always looking, what can I learn from that situation? What can I learn from that girl that will help me going forward? The third resolution, to look to Christ in all things. 
to live for Christ in all circumstances, to love like Christ in all relationships, to look to Christ in all things. Verse 14 of chapter 3, he says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Look at that quote by C.S. Lewis. You know, yesterday, attendees, remember I read you a quote from Grief Observed when he was struggling with the death of his wife from cancer? And he was really wrestling with anger with God, disappointment. This next quote comes from that same book as he's beginning to resolve things. He says, listen now, how powerful. If you're approaching him, approaching God, not as the goal, but as a road, not as the end, but as a means, you are not really approaching him at all. What's he saying? He's saying God is not our means to achieve our ends. No, we're God's means to achieve what? His ends. He's the goal. He's the objective. I'm to submit to His authority because I've been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. I'm to serve His agenda. I'm to seek His approval, not the applause of men. I'm to seek not my pleasure, but His pleasure. And as I find His pleasure, that's where I find true pleasure and joy and happiness. Jesus said the first step, the first step in all spiritual decline is when you have left your first love. And so it gives me another opportunity, attendees. There's nothing more important in this ministry than your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Because again, power in ministry is dependent upon purity of heart and life. And that purity comes by knowing an intimacy and a closeness with Jesus. And how do you know you've left your first love in the context of ministry? When ministry becomes, listen now, when ministry becomes a routine you are enduring instead of a relationship you are enjoying. See, Jesus wants you to walk in that ministry every day, hand in hand with Him. So that's when you know you've begun to leave your first love, when it becomes drudgery. It's just a routine you're enduring and no longer a relationship you're enjoying. Look at the fourth resolution, to lean on Christ in all challenges. To lean on Christ in all challenges. To live for Christ in all circumstances, to love like Christ in all relationships, to look to Christ in all things, and to lean on Christ in all challenges. Look at Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. It bothers me how we rip this verse out of its context. You know, I was an athlete for many, many years, and athletes are notorious about this, you know. It's like the verse we claim to give us victory or whatever, you know, we're seeking. But look at the context, Philippians verses 11 and 12. Here's the context in which he says it. He says, I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. That's when he says, because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The context of that verse is Paul saying, I've learned the secret of contentment. And keep in mind, just real quick, I'm, I'm, I'm about done, believe me. But just to make this, you say... What were some of the circumstances he's talking about? 1 Corinthians 11, let me just read this to you. Here's what this man dealt with. And it's in the context of what I'm reading, he's saying, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He says, for I've received from the Lord Jesus, uh, wait, wait, I'm not there yet. 2 Corinthians, I'm sorry. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, are they servants of Christ? He's, he's referring to false teachers. Uh, I more so, and then here he goes, in far more labors, 
in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I've received from the Jews 39 lashes. You know what that is? That's the scourging that Jesus received before his crucifixion. Five times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I have spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure upon me for concern for all the churches or my ministry. Who is weak without me being weak? Or who is led into sin without my intense concern? It's in the context of those difficulties. Paul said, I've learned the secret to be content because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, very quickly, we're just going to run through this. Lessons learned from Paul. We'll give it to you where you can get all the blanks filled in. And then you can spend this next year trusting God to give you grace to live this out. Number one, do not focus on escaping circumstances, but exalting Christ by advancing the gospel. Living and sharing the gospel of Christ must always remain at the center of our lives and ministries. Sound familiar? Remember our lesson on David? We talked about how he went in that cave of Adullam, that cave dark cave of despair, and we raised the question, well, how long did God keep him in the cave? And you remember the answers we gave? He kept him in the cave till he got so low, low, he had no place to look but up. And he kept him in that cave until exalting Christ became more important than escaping the cave. God was saying, David, you're not ready for me to get you out of that cave until you've learned to be content with me, find delight in me in the midst of the cave. And that's what he says to us. So bottom line, the point is, blossom wherever God plants you. That was Paul's attitude. Hey, if I'm in prison, let me just blossom for Christ right here. And the reason he could do that, and the only reason you're going to be, is the next point, which I think is one of the most significant challenges for every believer to arrive at. Faith, true biblical faith, never demands God to accomplish a particular outcome, but gives God the freedom to arrange the circumstances of my life and ministry in the way He deems best to display His glory. Do you see what Paul is teaching us and what's being said here? I don't have to focus on outcomes. I don't have to focus on results. Remember what we talked about last night? Don't focus on success. Focus on what? Holiness of heart and life. Goodness gracious, look at the cross. Jesus loves me. The one who loves me most knows what is best for me. Am I any wiser than he is? Can I trust him to lead me, to finish the work he's given me here on earth to do? My responsibility is just to surrender to him, just to love him. Give him the freedom. God, here's my life. Consecrated, Lord, to thee. I'm going to give you the freedom, you the freedom to arrange my life in the way that you deem best. And I'm going to thank you for whatever comes. And I'm going to plant myself right there, blossom for you, and use the adversity as a platform to make Jesus known. Number three, receive people we've talked about as gifts from God to teach you deeper depths of Christ's love and how to reach people with the gospel. And let me just tie this in very, very quickly, attendees, to the very first lesson. Remember we raised the question about Joseph when he was in the darkness of that maze. He was lost in the maze of God's presence. He couldn't connect the dots. He saw no rhyme or reason. And we say we often get in the maze of God's providence, and we talked about how do you get out? Well, you don't get out by frantically looking for a way out. The way God leads you out is by loving people that you encounter in the maze. So receive people as God's gift from God to teach you deeper depths of His love. Number four. Oh, 
So important. Maintaining Jesus Christ as my first love is my first priority in life and ministry. In my relationship with Christ, there is to be no rival, no refusal, no retreat. No rival to Jesus. No refusal of Jesus. No retreat from what He's called me to do. And that question, yes, Jesus is present in my life as a believer. He's present in your life as a believer attendees. The question is, but is He preeminent in your life? Can you honestly say, in my life, He has no rival. There is nothing I'm refusing of Him, and there is no retreat, regardless the cost. And then fifth, challenges are intended not only to draw me near Christ, to find contentment in Him. In that Romans, uh, 2 Corinthians 12, that's Paul's thorn in the flesh, how God uses our weakness as an opportunity to demonstrate His power, but also to provide a platform to demonstrate to others that Jesus is enough. See, you glorify God most when you're satisfied with Him. And the greatest opportunity to demonstrate that you're satisfied and you delight in Jesus is when everything else is stripped from you. And I'll leave you this. We already said this yesterday, attendees. Remember we said, we said you'll never know that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. And that's why God in His infinite mercy kicks those crutches out from underneath us. It becomes substitutes for leaning on God to drive us to Him to learn that He alone is enough. Bow with me in prayer. Let me just allow just a few moments of, uh, for you to just get alone with God there in, right there in the privacy of your heart. In light of the challenge that we've received, and we all acknowledge, that we all, I know, acknowledge, there's no way we can live this out apart from God's power at work in us. We are impotent apart from Him. But He does desire us to reciprocate to his love. Paul teaches us that. So I just want to challenge you right now. Would you say, as we talked about last night, what saith my Lord to his servant? Would you ask God to take whatever measures necessary to truly conquer you, where you will be his captive, where he will know no rival in your heart, no refusal, and there'll be no retreat from what he's called you to do. And then would you commit, knowing that you cannot do it apart from God's grace, knowing that it's going to be a growing process. I'm so thankful Paul used that language, I have learned to be content. He wasn't always there. But would you say, yes, Lord, give me grace to live for you in all circumstances, to love like you in all relationships, to look to you in all things, and to lean on you in all challenges. Father, how we thank you for each and every one of our attendees. Thank you for every single ministry that is represented. 
Lord, we love them. I love them. They truly are the joy and glory of my heart. And I thank you for their love for me, their love for this church. And Lord, we're all in this together. To advance the gospel of Jesus Christ through this church, to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ through our pregnancy center ministries. Lord, we so readily acknowledge, as we've seen all weekend, that more important from your perspective than the success of the work is the character development of the workers. Again, as we've said, it's not that you're not interested in success in the cause of Christ. It's just an acknowledgement that power in ministry is dependent upon purity of heart and life. So, Lord, we've shared so much this weekend, so much truth. I know it's been overwhelming in so many different ways. But, Lord, there has been just an underlying theme running through that you're the sovereign God who is worthy of our worship who loves us unconditionally and the one who loves us most knows what is best and what we've seen in every one of these biblical characters is that they came to the place in their lives where they surrendered outcomes, surrendered looking for results to you, surrendered that tendency to look for success. And they said, God, I give you the freedom to arrange my life, the all things of my life, everything about my life in the way that you deem best. And so, Lord, as you do that, We know there will be times, like Joseph, we become lost in the maze of your providence. We can't connect the dots. We won't understand what you're doing. But like Joseph, give us the faith not to close the book up too quick on you, confident that when you finish the story, there'll be only one testimony. God is great, and God is good. Like we saw with the Apostle Paul, how he used his imprisonment for the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, Lord, protect each of these ministries. We have an adversary. He hates us. These pregnancy centers have become a primary objective target of the enemy to bring us down because of our commitment to the sanctity of human life and the gospel of Jesus Christ. So give them, each and every one, the grace to stand firm in their faith. Make every provision to enable them to finish the work that you've given them to do. And Lord, let them know your empowerment and your filling that they might honor you in all things. For it's in Christ's name we do pray. Amen.